So, Father, we, we thank you for this morning. Again, we just lift it all up. It's in, in your hands, Father. We dedicate this time to you. Uh, we ask that you'd minister to us, Lord, and that everything, everything that's spoken, Lord, comes from you and, and lifts you up and blesses the hearts of the people here. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to start on faith here and, and trust that some of you are still watching TV with commercials. Um, but uh, if you guys know who Ewan McGregor is, most of you know him as the young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes? Okay, so that's good. Um, but he does have some commercials that are on TV, uh, and he does them for Expedia, and I don't know if you've seen them. But what he says in one of those, Expedia is a travel site where you make arrangements for your, your flights and everything else. And he says, do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret the things that we didn't buy? Or the places that we didn't go? Right? And then they show the panorama of all the different places you can go. And I agree with this to the extent that material things shouldn't matter, right? And it's the places that you visited and the memories that are generated from those trips. Uh, they seem to be more important. But where I differ with him on that, because I, I do, is that the enjoyment of those trips is really dependent on who you took the trip with, right? I mean, that's kind of important. Because I've been to some nice places, but I mean, how much can you really enjoy a trip if you go with Bob from accounting, right? It's, it's like not the same, right? And if there's a Bob from accounting out there, no disrespect, but I just want to point that out, that what makes a trip so special or a vacation really is who you spend it with. The enjoyment is derived from the time that you spent and hopefully from somebody, with somebody you love. Because there's the memories there that you have with them and then the moments that you share right? And so when you look back on your life, what's likely to be more important in terms of regret or what you wish you had done is not that you had traveled to this place or that place, but it's more likely to be that you had spent more time with the people that you love. Am I right? Okay, and when it comes down to it, it's really all about relationships. That's what really matters in life. And we all have relationships, we have them at work, we have them at school, uh, church, and home, right? Another place every day. You go to the grocery store, you go to Starbucks, restaurants, whatever. You have relationships with people, and they can impact and determine your enjoyment in life. At work, you can be really good at something, but if your boss or your coworker is a jerk, it's, it's not the same, right? And at church, you can have the best doctrine, you can have the best worship, but if you're not enjoying the fellowship with the other people, then that takes something out of it. And of course, at home, which is very important in most people's minds, it's the most important thing because home is where the heart is, that's where your refuge is, that's where your oasis is. You know, that's where you should really have a good relationship with your loved ones. And to further my point on that, you know, the Bible says that if you have a broken relationship, right? Jesus was talking in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he says in verse 23, therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And first, this is why it's important, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So the reconciliation of, in, of relationships is very important. And God's relationships are at the core of enjoyment in life. 
So what about relationships? Well, there's two types here that we recognize in church that we talk about a lot. There's the horizontal relationships that we have with everybody, you know, people to people or animals, I guess. But um, then there's the vertical relationship, the one that we have between ourselves and our creator, Jesus. And that's the most important one, amen, because it impacts our life, both now and eternally. And it matters more, not only now, but it matters more and we'll all find out when we die. And Christianity is defined as a relationship, and that's our relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, amen? So we get that imperative that's passed on that we are frequently to take a step back and examine this relationship from time to time because of the value of this relationship, because it's so important. I mean, that's why we celebrate communion every month, right? We, we remind ourselves to examine ourselves. We cite scripture to make sure that we have the proper heart. Uh, we use 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves. There's that word, right? I think in the Greek it's dokimatso, if I remember right. Test yourselves uh, before you eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And then it's restated in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And I remember that because we covered it not too long ago when we were going through the book of Corinthians, and Pastor Arnold went through that because we need to understand that when you do that, it reveals the proof that you're walking in the faith. So examine yourselves, whether you are in the faith, and test yourselves. And today, even though we did a good job, I want to do the same thing, but just from another angle in the hopes of strengthening our relationship with the Lord and give us some insight, but also so that we can benefit from it and then bless other people and encourage other people. So to begin with, like I said, there's two parties involved in our relationship with the Lord. And, and while it's true, it's oversimplifying things to say, he's God, I'm not. That's an oversimplification in terms of today because the more I thought about it, I thought, gosh, you know, in business, there's a lot of times that I, I go over uh, relationships and, and how we can improve relationship in business. You do the same thing. And I realize the best relationships in business are usually the ones that are well-defined. So what do I mean by that? Well, to avoid misunderstandings, to prevent any breakdowns, or anything that would jeopardize a relationship, you define that relationship to such a point that you would put it in writing. If a company really wants to solidify its relationship with another company, they put it in writing. So that's how you know if they're really serious about working with you. They put it in writing. People do it as well, right? You do it in marriage. You want to make sure that you really want to get married? Let's do it. Put it in writing. That's a real commitment. But in business, they have all different ways of doing it. They have letters of intent. They have a memorandum of understanding. They have non-disclosure agreements where you exchange confidential information. They have joint press releases. They have uh, contracts. I mean, that's the final one, is a real contract. And they put it in writing because they're serious. They're serious about the desire to work together, and they're serious about having the relationship succeed. And then success is more likely to occur if you underline that with commitment, right? If they both share the same degree of commitment and then they anticipate possible hiccups, they anticipate circumstances or occurrences, and then they plan their resources accordingly, and they you know, say, if this happens, that happens, they call those contingencies as well. And so, out of the business and coming back to the Lord, when it comes to our relationship with him, 
Don't we want our relationship to succeed in the same way? Don't you want it to be productive and produce fruits in our lives? Because that's when you're really living. That's when you're really living as a disciple of Christ. And so I gave it some more thought, and I realized, you know what? There are a lot of stipulations. There are a lot of terms and conditions that are already in writing in terms of our relationship with the Lord. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's right here. It's right here in the Bible. There's lots of written uh, documents in the Bible. And sure, there's all kinds of narratives, which are stories. There's all kinds of poetry, and there's songs, and there's doctrine. You know, but on top of all that, it has all the hallmark, hallmarks, I should say, of a written agreement. They might not be in order, you know, like they would for a standard contract, but they're all there. There's all kinds of terms and conditions in it, and there's really good examples. We've been covering that recently with the Proverbs. If you remember, we talked about the couplets and how they're arranged and how they're like terms, you know, they're, they're contrasted couplets, there's completed couplets and comparisons, right? If this, then that, better this, then that. So those are simple but uh, similar, I would say, to terms and conditions that are found in everyday business. And then there's wonderful uh, declarative, that's hard for me to say, declarative statements uh, by the Lord that are throughout the Bible. He makes declarations, and it starts from the beginning. He starts in Genesis when he's talking to Abraham and his family. And if you remember, God would establish his covenant with them, and he lists all his promises. And then I loved one further on when you go into Exodus, and if you remember, Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to free the Israelites, and then there was some frustration initially and, and questioning among the people, like, you know, what's going on? Why, why isn't this happening the way we expect it to happen? But in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, it says, the Lord says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Isn't that awesome? He said, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That's an awesome promise. Can you imagine God saying, I will be your God? So yeah, this idea of looking at the Bible as a written and formal document, it, it, started, it got me excited because I started looking at it in a new way. And I thought, okay, I'm going to apply this analogy to our message today because it, it made it easier and it made it come alive. Now, for example... You know how, maybe you don't, but a contract usually has at the beginning uh, details of who the subjects are, the people that are involved, right? And so you say, all right, uh, who, they are, who are they? They give definitions, and they, especially they give definitions of the parties and the roles that they might have within uh, the execution of the document. So it establishes and defines the two parties. It says, uh, so-and-so doing business as, or also known as, you know, this their aliases or something like that, and what their overall goal and plan is in the beginning. That's how they started off. They, they um, identify what the goal is, and then they lay out the terms and conditions after everybody is defined. And the Bible does that. Again, just not in order. So, it's, and it's interesting, too, because a contract usually has an expiration date, right? And you got to renew it after a certain period of time, a renewal clause, and it stipulates how often the parties involved should evaluate the relationship or examine the relationship, be it every year or every three years. So again, there's a, an analogy there that I, I thought, wow, that, that's pretty neat. So the Bible does all of this, and I wanted to keep these types of uh, analogies in mind because here's the underlying context, that if you're a Christian, 
You should reflect on your relationship with him. You should do it on a regular basis, right? And so we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So I want to follow this format, um, see the Bible as a written document. First, we're going to establish the roles of the two parties, and then we're going to reflect on the T's and C's. So roles of the two parties, one, two, and then thirdly, T's and C's. Pretty straightforward. So point number one in your outline, it's God's role. God, God the Lord, also, you know, the party of the first part, right? The Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the role of the Father is revealed when we study his word and when we pray and when we seek him, any way that we can interact with him. But I realize that to try and define this role, I mean, thoroughly in one message, it's, it's impossible. It would take just a number of messages. You, you couldn't do it. And to try and define it within 15 minutes here as point number one, it's formidable. It's a challenge. Um, so I noticed, though, sometimes in contracts, what they do is they help out the definition by stating that the party uh, that's involved is acting in the capacity of or behaving as or demonstrating behavior uh, according to, you know, basically exhibiting certain attributes, if you will. And so I'm cheating a little bit here today for brevity um, just by listing and providing a quick and abbreviated list of what I'm, I've come to know as the Lord's uh, character-defining attributes. There's not much room here in the outline, but there's seven listed, so maybe you can write them horizontally instead of vertically. So the first one is that, and this is what we should know already as, as Christians, that the Lord is eternal. And there's tons of scriptures when you look up eternal and, you know, the attributes for the Lord. There's tons that, that reference that. I'm just going to give you one, which is Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, that's the first attribute. Second one, he's sovereign. And that's from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. All right, he's eternal, he's sovereign, and thirdly, he's holy. And holy, whenever I think of the word holy, I think of the, the 24 elders in Revelation, right? And the four living creatures, and they're gathered around the throne in heaven. And what are they singing in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8? It says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Continuously. Man, you can, that's like you can't say holy enough because he's that holy. Amen? So he's eternal, he's sovereign, he's holy, and we know he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah 44, verse 24. Isaiah 44, 24. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. He's eternal, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient, which is different. Omnipotent is all-powerful, omniscient is all-knowing, right? And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 
chapter 23, verse 24. He's eternal, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and he's love. He's love. Before and above, below and to the side, he's love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can't ask for more love than that. And that's who our God is. He's all of them. And really, again, there's tons of scriptures for each one of these attributes, and we don't have time for them. We would have to do separate studies. But what's most defining in terms of today's message is that, and what applied to me in my heart, was that he's eternal. In John chapter 8, he says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus knew, and he conveyed that. He communicated that. He doesn't change. He's always there. He's always consistent. His love doesn't change. His reactions, because they, what happens, it's just amazing to think that. How can he not change his love for us because of how we are, right? We're all up and down. But it's important to understand that, and I'll explain why it's more relevant later. Um, but that's God's role, point number one. Point number two is, our role, you and I, we're the party of the second part in this relationship. And I, I don't really have to spend too much time on this, defining ourselves, because you guys know, hopefully, who you are, right? In sub-point A, in, in terms of the document here, the Bible says that we are first his children. These were just the ones that came to mind. We're his children. We know that. He loves us. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, understand then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham, spiritually children of Abraham. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 8, it says, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Okay, so we're his children. Great term, very endearing. Secondly, we're his bride. And I think of the parable of the ten virgins, and they're waiting for the bridegroom. And those, that parable is found throughout the four gospels. We're his bride. Ultimately, there's a wedding of the lamb, if you think about it, again, and how we, the church, are described as a beautiful bride. Isn't that neat? We're his bride. He, he, he waits for us. So it, it's just wonderful to, be, to hear that description. It's, just, again, very endearing to know that we are his beloved. So we're described as children, his bride, and then the Bible says that we are to be a servant, Right? And I think of the parables, again, Jesus was always talking about these parables to, uh, import, to, to impart the importance of these roles that we should be taking on. And one is a servant, to be a good steward of the gold and the talents. He talked about that as a, a parable in Matthew chapter 25. And then there was another one where he's talking about the servants and, and how we're to be mindful uh, and watching and serving with his return in mind. That's in Luke chapter 12, verse 38. He says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Do we do that? A little side question there. Are we always cognizant of the fact he can come anytime? I think about that when I see the sunsets or, you know, I was like, wow, am I ready? You know, but be aware of that. That can happen. Live your life like that. We're his children. We're his bride. We're his servants. And the Bible also says we're his sheep. Right? That's in Luke chapter 15, among other places. It may not be so flattering, 
right? But to note that we aren't the brightest tool in the shed here, well, that's a mix of um, metaphors, or um, the sharpest tool in the shed or the brightest light, there you go, uh, and that we have a tendency to wander off. But as we were singing this morning, we're so valuable to him that he would leave the 99 to search for the one. Amen? So I love that. I don't mind being called a sheep because I know that the Lord will come search for me. And there's a lot more descriptions of us as people in the Bible. And, but I relate to the last one here on my list is that we're stubborn, right? Stiff-necked, right? Stubborn hearts. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 16, it says, The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? So that's what the Bible says that we are, just some of them. Now, as we look at ourselves, internally, in subpoint B, it's who are we in Christ? Who do you say that you are? And this is basically homework. I'm going to leave that for, for most of you to do. Um, but just ask yourself some questions here. One of them that I wrote down was, what defines you? And what I mean by that is, it's a question of orientation. And I was having breakfast with a brother the other day. And I tried to explain to him, basically, is how, are, how do you see yourself in terms of orientation? For men, a lot of times their identity is tied into who they are at work. What do they do for a living? But you do have different orientations. When you go to back to school night with the kids, you don't introduce yourself as, hey, you know, I'm Gil Medell. They're not going to know who you are. You're going to say, I'm, I'm Connor's dad or, you know, I'm Molly's dad. Nice to meet you. There you go to a the kids' uh, athletic team, same, same thing, right? You introduce yourself as their parent. You go to a high school reunion for your wife. You know, I introduce myself. I'm, I'm Lizzie's husband, right? Sometimes I, I go in there and I just say, hey, class of 76. And they go, I don't remember you. Like, yeah, <laughs> I went to school 300 miles away, but, you know, still class of 76, right? So, um, but the point is it's all about the orientation, right? And so... As Christians, that should be our orientation. You see yourself as a servant? Do you see yourself as a disciple? You know, do you utilize the talents that we talked about earlier? Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be? To me, I, I think if I could be known as a God-fearing man, that would be good. You know, because you look back on your life and you go, man, that's what I want to be known as, a God-fearing man. So... Homework for you guys, take that back as part of your self-examination. And then the second point, as far as questions, is what do you bring to the relationship? I'm not talking about works. I'm just saying what do you bring to the relationship willingly? What do you offer up to the Lord? If you go home and ask yourself those two questions, you know, what defines you and what do you bring, then, then you're fulfilling your, your part here that I'm asking you to do, to play. So let's get back to the analogy here about this document here. As we try, we've defined the Lord, um, we tried, we define ourselves, and then thirdly, you know, we talk about the relationship, right? The T's and C's, the terms and conditions, as well as what, what the Lord brings to the relationship here. Now, I mentioned earlier, in business, there's less leeway. It's, it's well-defined, you know, if this happens and this option is there to be exercised, and if this happens in terms of a failure, then there's... These options for relief, you know, they talk about uh, indemnification. You don't hold the other people responsible, uh, an agreement to protect them or, 
or hold them for liability or not hold them, all that in business. But in real life, <laughs> and in terms of our relationship with the Lord, you can't do that. You can't accommodate everything that happens in life in writing. And I think of all the crazy stuff in life that happens over the course of a lifetime, and it's impossible to anticipate or record them and then have a, a counter plan automatically. So that was really the, the generation. That's when the light bulb came on for me is just how this relationship we have with the Lord, it's so one-sided because we don't need to hash out all the contingencies. He knows what they are, right? He's like, don't worry about it. I know what's, gonna, I know what's going to happen as much less, you know, what to do in case something happens, right? So, yeah, there's two parties in the relationship, but you start to think about it. Only one is crazy, and it's not the Lord, you know? And only one is susceptible to the winds and the furies and the storms that are in life. 50% of the relationship is wacko, right? And 50%, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but <laughs> we are who we are, right? And 50% of the relationship is stable, right? Manifesting all those attributes that we talked about. And if you talk about numbers in our relationship, again, 50% of the party, that's us, we provide 100% of the problems in that relationship. And that's what the Lord brings to the equation because although he's 50% of the total, he provides 100% of the strength, the grace, the wisdom, all the talents that we have, he provides what we need. We have nothing to do with it. And we have to remember that. And remember that in terms of relationship, if you examine it and you think about it, it's totally lopsided, amen? So as much as we live in a world that's topsy-turvy and things changing and all the time and happening, such that our conditions change, the circumstances change, and they can really you know, play havoc with our life here, sub-point A is that and this is a key condition here in term, is that God remains the same. We mentioned that. This is where it comes back. This is where I talked about how he's eternal. This is where it comes back. God remains the same. No matter what the conditions are in our lives, he's the same. And I love that. If things are going good, God's the same. And if you're blessed, you might be, able, you might be in the middle of a really good ride in life. That's, that's awesome. You know. Then you're thinking, oh, God's so good. You're Jehovah Jireh. Right? You're the great provider. You take care of me. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. But if things are going bad, what then? And I'm sure you guys can relate to what I'm talking about because things can go bad. You know? But what I don't want to see happen is people characterizing God based on what's going on in their lives. Right? Because he, he's constant. He doesn't change. You know? And even though we shouldn't, I know that our current state sets the tone a lot of times our current circumstances. And because we're human, our perspective is warped, you know, and then we're selfish, so we have our nature. And, and a lot of times we're, we're, the society that we have here is transactional, you know, oh, if I do this, then this should happen because that's the expectation that's been laid out, right? So some people think, oh, if I'm only good, then God will bless me and then he'll protect me and maybe even honor me. But here's the truth. And subpoint B, life is tough. Is this a surprise to anybody out there? No. Raise your hands if you're going through trials, right? And Jesus said, I've told you these things in Matthew 16, verse 33. 
I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen? He has. Life is not supposed to be easy or perfect. Now, we can make it easier, maybe by praying for wisdom, making good choices, right? But it's not going to be easy. You're going to have trials. You won't always get answers to all your questions. Things won't always make sense. Some people are blessed for no reason that we can comprehend. We don't always have that understanding. And then some people don't seem to be punished for doing what's wrong. And then some people aren't blessed for serving the Lord. You're like, wow. And then the, the classic one is bad things can happen to good people. Now, again, if good things are happening to you in your life and if you're in a good state, great. But just don't, again, fall into that trap that I mentioned, thinking that I'm blessed, it's because God loves me more, right? It doesn't work like that, that he's somehow happier with you at a certain point in time than later on when you're suffering. You know, oh, I love you more now, love you less later. doesn't work like that. So trials are inevitable. Um, we say that here in church all the time. You're either in a trial or you're getting out of a trial or you're about to enter into one. But remember, no matter what, God's love is constant, and he doesn't change, and you can't change him. And that's true. And so it only makes sense, subpoint C here, to make him the foundation of the relationship. Why not? Why not have a solid base instead of yourself as the base? Make him the foundation. It just makes sense. Isaiah said in chapter 28, verse 16, he said, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Don't fight it. There's one Lord. That's it. You should not be the Lord of your life. There's one Lord, and we should appreciate that fact. We should take comfort in it because we want consistency, right? And he's impervious to change, and he's the foundation that we should depend on. Our life is crazy, but he remains the same. Our life is unstable. We have no idea what's going to happen, but he's the rock. Trust in the Lord forever. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4, it says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He's our refuge in any storm, and you can come to him, and you can, yeah, you can tell him what happens, and he's listening, but he knows. He knew already. And moreover, he understands what's going on. And what blows my mind is he's okay with this, that even though it's a one-sided relationship, you know, whereas he gives and what we do is basically take, he's okay with that. I mean, if this was a legal document, again, the Bible that we're talking about here, it still fulfills all the requirements, you know, the intent of really accounting for pretty much every circumstance in our life, any high or any low that's in our life that's thrown our way, because Jesus knew what it's like to be human, right? He lived a human life. And then you add in his omniscience, and he accounts for everything that can happen. He knows about it. He anticipated it. And in Scripture, there's always just some wonderful counsel or advice or wisdom or comfort. And that's a manifestation of Jesus, right? Jesus is the Word. So he knows what you're going through. And how do I know? It's because he's already been praying for you. <laughs> And again, that, that blows my mind. It's not on the overhead. I don't think I forgot to put it in there, which is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
It says, therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's always praying for you. He knows what your needs are, and he's praying. That just blows my mind. And that's why he should be the foundation of any relationship for us. He should be the foundation. I know that it can seem like everything is falling apart. Like life is just too messed up, right? You got all these trials and and all these issues. But not everything is falling apart because Jesus is still Lord, amen? He's still on the throne and he remains the same. He knows what's going on. And because he knows, he's the right guy to come to. You're not gonna surprise him. You're not gonna say, hey, this is going on. Didn't you know that? And he's going, man, I didn't know. You know. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. You know, hey, somebody help this guy out, right? Or this person. No, you're not going to surprise him. And before you can even ask him, before you can say, where do I turn to? Where does my help come from? You know, you don't, you don't need to ask for a referral. It's not like, you know, hey, do you know a good doctor, a good mechanic? It's not you're asking your friend, hey, and he'll say, I know a guy. Because he's the doctor. He's a one-stop shop for everything. And I remember when I first came to the Lord and I was witnessing to friends and I was telling them, you know, I accepted the Lord and it gave me uh, a new perspective. I give him control of my life, you know, and, and he's in control. And my friend would say, oh, you're just using him as a crutch. You know, you just can't handle life, so you're just using him as a crutch. And I go, he's not the crutch. He's the whole hospital, right? He's all the nurses. He's all the technicians. He's the doctors. He's the building. He's the, the beds. He's everything. You can't go wrong when you, when you bring it all to him. And so that's the context that I want to have when it comes to our examining, examining our relationship with the Lord. You know, just don't forget to give him his due. It's not a fair relationship. Maybe to us it is. For us, we, I mean, it's win, 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 win. But it's not an equal relationship. And just keep that perspective. He is Lord. You're never going to look back and think, shoot, I wish I hadn't you know, come to the Lord at that point in time. This, you would say, I wish I had come to the Lord earlier rather than later. right? It's always, I, why did I waste so much time and effort doing this, trying to cope on my own? You know, when you, you can bring your troubles to him. And I love that. I love that he's infallible. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make promises that he won't keep. And there's tons of promises that are right here in the Bible, and we know that. Our God is faithful, amen? We might not be, (laughs) but he is. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does, Psalm 33, verse 4. He's so faithful. You can ask God for more faith even, and he'll deliver. He's the author and finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter. Of faith. That's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. So God is faithful through and through, amen? And, and I need a God like that to depend on, to believe in. We all do, and I know that. So as Christians, we live by his promises, which I uh, liken to his terms, the terms that he has for us. He will never leave us or forsake us, no matter what the condition, no matter what's going on. And what's more, if you were to put this in writing, you know, in a legal document, believe me, your lawyer wouldn't let you put this in writing, but if you were to put in the document, I want what's best for the other guy, your lawyer would say, what, are you nuts? You don't put that in a, in a document, 
you know, I want what's best for him. Can you imagine two companies where they say, oh, no, I want you to have all the profits. No, I want you to have all the profits. You never see that happen because their nature is to be selfish, right, and to look out for the best interests. Of, and, of course, that's our nature, but it's not the Lord's. And he puts it in writing. And so subpoint D is that he wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 17. He says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way that you should go. Isn't that neat? I love Isaiah. And so knowing what we've covered here so far, that God is the same no matter what's going on in life, and that if we make him the foundation of our relationship, if we orient ourselves to, in terms of our thinking, you know, our lives of who we are, and, and we know that he wants what's best for us, is it any surprise for subpoint E that even if there's something there, he provides what is lacking? He provides what is lacking. I like what it says, and this is one of our, I guess, collectively as a church, we, we cite this a lot, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 said, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He provides what is lacking. He does. That's what he brings to relationship. He more than fulfills his role by being the foundation and then by being the source of strength. And then, you know, he fills in the gaps, what's lacking. So point F, is that it's guaranteed, again, in writing. So there we go again, this, this comparison here. We know that he guarantees that, all of this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, right? Underline his. Romans 8, 28, I almost forgot to cite that. But you guys knew this. And what more can anybody ask for in a relationship you know, we've got the love, we've got the encouragement, we've got forgiveness, we've got abundance of grace, all these things. And so when we do our examinations uh, of our relationship, remember all of that. Keep your perspective here. He's looking out for us. He's looking ahead for us. He's praying for us. You know, we might be falling apart emotionally, financially, physically. You might be falling apart, but we do have something to stand on. We have someone to lean on. No matter how little hope you might have left, no matter how little hope you might have left, if you have Jesus, you have enough, right? And so that's the title of my message. I know I kind of messed up here putting it at the end of the message instead of at the beginning, but strengthen what remains. As we wind up our, our message, your strength and remains. I was reading Revelation in chapter 3. We're talking to the church. And the scripture says in verse 2 of chapter 3, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now there's some uh, discussion about whether this refers to the people themselves or to their activities, but the premise to me was clear is that what remains, no matter what will always remain, is that which is in Jesus. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that's what's like, wow, he's... That's what remains. So why shouldn't we strengthen what will always remain? He will always remain standing. And when you need to stand firm, stand in him. He will always be there. Amen. God bless you guys. So let's all stand and give the Lord some praise, please.